When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Karen Pugliese, executive editor of Canada's National Observer, joining us from day six, is it, of COVID? It's closer to day eight, I think, or something. Glad to have you here regardless. Hope you get well soon. Today on the show, Karen, Pope or nope? (laughs) Also, Wendy Mesley flirts with the intellectual dark web. Should she swipe right? We'll find out. Welcome back to Shortcuts, Karen, where we talk shit about the news. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jesse. This episode is brought to everybody by Max Babin, Allison McClare, Jeremy Collette, Mary Jane Cox, Quinn Cook, Jerry Veldhuis, Amy Wood, and Alexandra. My name's Alexandra, and I'm a PSW from Cambridge, Ontario. I support Canada Land for the deep dives on Commons especially. I recommend them to anyone who'll listen to me. I'm grateful for this reporting and the openings for conversation they've afforded me.
Turning now to that historic apology issued by Pope Francis during his trip to Canada. Sorry for the ways in which, regrettably, many Christians supported the colonizing mentality of the powers that oppressed the indigenous peoples. Lives cut short, say survivors, by the residential school the Roman Catholic Church ran at this site. Even from afar, the Pope's words were enough to trigger haunting memories and the tears that follow. A feathered headdress was gifted to the Pope on the public stage. Karen, this was one of those news events that's like like a scheduled news event. Like you could look at the calendar and plan out your editorial coverage and say, okay, there's going to be a historical event on this date. And so the media, I think, had every opportunity to get this right. How do they do? You know, overall, I'm going to say pretty well. I think that this is a really complicated and nuanced story. People feel all sorts of ways about it. And I think they've really tried to balance those people who have waited for this, for whom this apology is very meaningful, how they feel about it, and with people who are not willing to accept it, who are experiencing anger and upset about it, upset about all the things that are not happening. And, you know, they've managed to get a little bit of everything in between. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's quite a few Indigenous journalists at the forefront of the editorial coverage. I felt the same way about it. There wasn't like any coverage that I heard that just blindly quelled over like, okay, this is great. This is done. There was always the... But there are questions or some people are unsettled about this or not everyone feels great about it. And it was respectful of the people for whom this was really meaningful and watching the actual just the apology itself. It wasn't anything that the Pope said. It was the faces of the survivors there where like I wouldn't want to be dismissive of something that like obviously had such deep, deep meaning and hopefully healing for people there. And it was so much was communicated just by their emotional responses. And it was one of those things where TV actually was the right medium just to see it. But in terms of the analysis, like, you know, hearing Thomas King with Galloway on CBC or reading Tanya Talaga in The Globe and then, you know, Pamela Palmata wrote in The Star and uh, Brandy Morin was, was there reporting, I believe, for Al Jazeera. But like, it felt like kind of a watershed moment, like, huh, maybe all of the work that's been done in recent years to make sure that there are Indigenous journalists equipped in these newsrooms is, like, we actually have, like, the bench strength to do this right and to cover the nuance. I kind of felt like the coverage was generally quite good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even at CNO, we've got uh, two Indigenous reporters and a host of Indigenous columnists. So in some ways, like, per capita, we're pretty well well benched for this ourselves. It made a difference. And I think Indigenous writers also know how to navigate this because in our culture, we often use an expression when we're going to have a a, a difficult conversation. We'll say, I want to tell you something, but I want to say it in a good way. And that's meant to disarm you to say, we're going to say some things that might sound critical or whatever, but what we're trying to do 
is we're trying to have a more open conversation about things that we're going to disagree on and things that, if not said in a good way, might create animosity, but we're going to try to come together and and have a good conversation about how we all feel, where we all feel heard, right? So it's a very strong cultural approach. And I, I think that's sort of taken the lead. So if you look at some of those articles, Tanya Talega, Dan David, both respectfully talked about what this meant for the survivors who were celebrating the apology or receiving or accepting the apology. But they talked about the shortcomings, the doctrine of discovery, the controversy over Willie Littlechild, who is a former regional chief, former TRC commissioner, and uh, a very respected elder presenting a headdress to the Pope. That's really been controversial on social media, a lot of discussion about that. Cindy Blackstock did a piece where she looked at sexual assault victims and asking, what is the church, though, doing to address this? There were issues of all the papers that the church hasn't handed over in the schools. So those were all also things that people are feeling and also things that are left to be addressed and aren't addressed in this apology. Yeah, on a purely factual basis, I got those omissions. That was communicated to me by most of the coverage I saw, that he he didn't mention sexual assault, and he didn't promise to hand over the Vatican's residential school files, and he didn't talk about money, and, and he didn't renounce the doctrine of discovery. That was communicated, but it was Twitter where the more difficult things were wrestled with, and sometimes quite bluntly. Like, there was a little bit, like I heard Thomas King say about the headdress, and all of this nuance and all of this, like, improved coverage, and yet the image, this is all about symbols, because, like, very little in terms of practical or policy or anything being done came out of this. So this is a symbolic exercise, so the symbols matter, and the images matter, the optics matter, and the optic, the chief image of this, was the Pope in a headdress. And... This is a tricky one, as I understand it, for people to wrestle with. There's a lot of different nations in Canada. There's lots of different indigenous peoples, and nobody wants to say that's bullshit, that that chief, they shouldn't have done that. Or maybe few people want to say that. No, I, and I mean, like in some, some nations, like I'm not aware of Algonquin nations, which is my nation, uh, having a tradition of uh, providing people outside of our community with headdresses. But it has been done. Harper received a headdress. Justin Trudeau received a headdress. And my understanding of Plains cultures, which I think are the ones who mostly gift these, and anybody can write in and you know tweet at me and correct me if I've got this wrong. But what I've been told is that there's different reasons for giving these. But when you gift them, for whatever reason that you gift them, and I, Willie Littlechild didn't say why he was gifting it, but with that gift comes a responsibility. And so... Whether or not the Pope understands that, I don't know. Whether or not there was a conversation beforehand that this was going to happen. Like, these are kind of unanswered questions that I think are kind of sparking the debate because people don't really understand what the understanding of the Pope or Willie Littlechild was in that gifting. Having said that, there is something really remarkable to me about seeing this symbol that's been like oppression for our people and our culture for so long, now having our culture imprinted on it in that way. So I felt like, because it's, it's not my culture, I'm kind of looking at it a bit as an outsider. And there was something about seeing that, I think maybe 
resonates in an important way. Like, I mean, there were times where we weren't allowed to bring our drums into church. We weren't allowed to speak our language in the residential schools. Early in churches, they did translate gospels and such into Cree and Algonquin languages, right? But now there's this big symbol, you know, the big symbol of all of Catholicism is enwrapped in something that's culturally precious to us. There is something about that that's special, but what was the understanding between those two people? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you could read it a number of different ways. And some people read it negatively. Russ Diabo, outspoken on Twitter, Indigenous policy analyst, among other roles, said, in Alberta, it seems everybody gets headdresses, whether they deserve it or not, with pictures of Trudeau, Harper, Rachel Notley, and the Pope in headdresses. Dan David, veteran Indigenous journalist, tweeted in response to the headdress, this, after almost 20 years of bitching about idiots wearing headdresses at rock concerts and Halloween parties, which is an interesting observation that after a high degree of sensitivity about cultural appropriation, when somebody stupidly appropriates indigenous culture and wears a headdress for a Halloween party, to put that on the head of the Pope, who represents the Catholic Church, which is more guilty than just about any other institution for genocide and, and abuse, I could get why that would offend some indigenous people. Absolutely. And I don't know, is this worth exploring? Like, there are a lot of different nations the Pope could have met with who would not have done that. But to meet with Chief Littlechild, who, and I learned this through Twitter, not through any of the coverage, is a former conservative member of parliament. You know, there had to be some intentionality in what is this going to look like? What are the pictures that are going to come out of this? How is this apology going to come across? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is something like in Dan's article that he wrote for us at The Observer, he talks about, you know, the church being this institution. And this is everything that hopped is more than a few bad apples. It is this powerful institution. It remains a powerful institution. It remains a moneyed institution. And he actually wrote, I'll read this pertinent sentence that he wrote. Like any global institution, the Vatican is very careful about the image and reputation of the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church, its various sects and the agencies, every bishop, priest, and nun, to borrow a term from modern advertising, the church jealously guards and protects its brand developed over the centuries. So a lot of this trip, this apology, where the Pope was choosing to go, who would be around him, who gets to go see him, who gets close to him, all of that would have been very carefully curated to put the best outcome on this, right? It's meant to be a public event. It's meant to be good for the Catholic brand. So that is all true. And I think what's happening in this kind of pushback against the headdress, particularly, is the question of sincerity around why that gesture was made and what was understood when it was accepted. We don't know. And so it's very easy for it to come off as just being like an empty gesture, uh, a photo op, right? What would really help at this point actually would be hearing from Willie Littlechild. I think he kind of owes a bit of, not an explanation, but insofar as he did something sacred and public. Yeah, and you bring up the biggest point, which I neglected to mention earlier, that was omitted, that was not said. The Pope apologized 
for the actions of specific Christians, sort of wayward, you know, sort of the bad apples apology, not for the institution. He did not apologize for the Catholic Church institutionally executing over the course of centuries a policy of genocide. So what does the headdress mean? Is it a gesture of like, we forgive you? Or is it like a gesture of we revere? Like, it's, is, is that the highest honor from, from a settler perspective, from a layperson's perspective? It could be interpreted as like, this is the highest honor you could give. So that's weird. I, I don't know. I guess an explanation would help. I don't know that one is owed to me, but it seems like there is confusion and conflict within the indigenous conversation about this. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I think it would be helpful because a lot of the anger surrounding this is not understanding the decision. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Karen, let's do it. Duly note something for me, please. What do you got? Well, the first one, I was saying like it's a, a shout out to APTN, but it's a little bit more than that. I mean, it starts as a shout out to APTN because I just want to note that still on the Pope's apology, they did the coverage in language so you could listen in English, in Nuktitut Cree. ¿Qué estoy dando de mí? You're hearing Henry Pitawanaquat translate the Pope's words in Ojibwe. And I think that was probably really important to some people to hear the Pope's apology in language, which was fantastic. It's not easy to do. But then as I was thinking about it, you know, I started thinking of my former colleague, who's now the news director, Cheryl McKenzie. And, you know, both her parents are residential school survivors. Her dad has passed into the spirit world, but her mom is still here. 
And so I sent a little text to her just, you know, saying, thinking of you. And then I was thinking, you know, if you think from her mom's point of view, just how powerful that is from her time and her lifetime and how she was treated to the fact that her daughter is running this national indigenous news agency. Mm-hmm. Like, would she have ever thought as a little girl that something like that would be possible? She just must be so proud. And then in our own newsroom, we just hired a young Cree reporter. Well, I, he's not that young, but to me, everybody's young. Mateo Simulero, who's just started with us. His mom is also a survivor. So if I could just give him a shout out because he's been taking care of family, doing self-care this week and still getting stories that are important about this apology out. So, you know, to all the families that are experiencing this week, I think whether or not you feel like experiencing or celebrating the Pope's apology, it really is a time for us to think about the survivors and all the families who are sharing this kind of intergenerational story and celebrating the victories of our survivors. Because they really are, you know, like the child soldiers who fought cultural genocide and they had nothing, nothing but inner strength as a weapon. So that's my duly noted. It's a good one. I mean, in, in addition to the earlier observation that this is kind of this moment where the investment and the awareness and the opportunities that have been given to Indigenous journalists, like we're, we're starting to see that strength and, and that reflected in the, in the reporting. I think it's also absolutely worth we're talking about that, like, whenever you bring up residential schools, it's personal for people, whether directly or, or in their family. So to be doing such an excellent job while balancing that and negotiating that is, uh, is worth noting. So, yeah, duly noted. I got one. Go for it. I want to duly note Justin Trudeau's fertilizer ban. Oh. (laughs) Okay. Why are you laughing? I've been getting very, very serious uh, tweets and emails. Jesse, why are you not talking about Trudeau's fertilizer ban? Why is the mainstream media ignoring Trudeau's fertilizer ban? So I looked into it. Well, it is true that the mainstream media has not been covering Justin Trudeau's fertilizer ban. But there is one man who has been covering it. And I think those people who've sent me those messages, it's because they watched his coverage. Because this guy went viral. Karen, I want to play you a clip from a video from Canada's alternative news media. This is not from the Justin Journos. This is not from the CBC. This is a report from the YouTube channel of Quick Dick McDick, who went viral with this video titled... The Canadian Fertilizer Ban. Quick Dick McDick coming to you from Saskatchewan here today with a Quick Dick McDick Toonie, where you get $2 worth of my opinions because two cents don't buy very much anymore. Today, we are talking about Justin Trudeau's Canadian ban on fertilizer. Now, first things first, folks, to be perfectly transparent, no matter what you're hearing, in Canada, this is not a ban or a mandated reduction in fertilizer like what we're seeing in the Netherlands yet. Okay, so we trimmed that down, Karen. Mm-hmm. We trimmed that down, but if you watch the actual video, it took Quick Dick McDick almost a full minute into this video titled The Canadian Fertilizer Ban until he says there is no Canadian fertilizer ban. Unsurprising then that the idea has somehow spread that there is a Canadian fertilizer ban and it's gaining traction. W. Brett Wilson, Dragon's Den millionaire dude, tweets to his 217,000 followers, well-spoken, quick dick McDick. The Liberal Party wants to freeze and starve our citizens to be a role model to the world. 
so fucked up. Karen, I want to direct the rest of my duly noted directly to Quick Dick McDick, if I may. Oh, please, go, go ahead. Mr. McDick. Or, or should I say Mr. Dick McDick? I'm not, like, is it a hyphenated surname? We'll, we'll look into it. Mr. McDick, as, as a fellow alternative news publisher, I have nothing but respect for your efforts to bring the public the news that the, uh, the lamestream media is afraid of. I also do appreciate the need to, like, you know, jazz things up a little bit in the headlines to get some traction. You know, it can otherwise be difficult to get people to watch a long video about government fertilizer policy. However, Mr. McDick, thousands of Canadians are relying on you for credible information. I want you to ask yourself, would your mom, dear old mother McDick, be proud of the way you're getting your clicks? Will the children, the next generation, all those little McDicks, will they hold their McDick heads high when they learn about how you have been gaining an audience on YouTube? Do better, Quick Dick McDick. You may be Canada's only hope. <laughs> oh my God, Jesse. <laughs> duly noted, duly noted. Have you another one for us, Karen? Yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with the uh, residential school survivors this week, I guess. But uh, this is kind of an important one, again, sort of relating back to things left undone. Kathleen Martins and Brittany Gallo from APTN tracked down and got an interview with the Oblate priest, Joannes Rivoire. Now, he fled Canada in the 1990s after he was accused of molesting at least three Inuit children over a period of, he spent about 30 years in uh, Nunavut. Other victims have come forward. And he's been living in France with the Oblates. Canada staged charges against him in 2017. And that was because they didn't believe that there was a possibility of actually convicting him. And Kathleen and Brittany get into that a little bit in their coverage about French laws and extradition, etc., a delegation of Inuit leaders did travel to the Vatican last spring, and they talked about this with Pope Francis. What's interesting is Kathleen and Brittany actually, first of all, got an interview with Joanne Scrivoire. So he denies everything, but I think maybe it's important because there's been nothing for people to at least hear that much. He is an elderly man. He's probably not going to live much longer. But this whole thing opens up the fact that the TRC, when it was established in Canada, it started under the Martin government and kind of finished under the Harper government. And both governments gave it a very narrow mandate. And one of the things that it was not tasked to do and was not allowed to do was actually ever to bring perpetrators to justice it was actually not supposed to do that. It was, you know, told in the mandate it did not have those powers. Mm -hmm. And so now a lot of survivors are, are questioning why it didn't have teeth. Others like the uh, South African TRC, which is the one that like, we would be most familiar with in Canada, but there's been like, I don't know, like 40 TRCs. It did have the power to, you know, to arrest, punish, to charge. And uh, in Canada, we didn't. So it's a good question. Why... We didn't do that in Canada and what happens now because there's a lot of perpetrators out there who are just living their lives who have never been charged or held to account. My point of reference for this is, of course, 
the efforts to bring Nazi war criminals to justice. And a lot of the same dynamics played out where when the idea was first floated, people said, oh, leave these guys alone. They're just old men. You know, there was kind of a, a sense of like, get over it. This was a very important part of that process. And it's incoherent to be reckoning with crimes of the past, uh, supposedly reconciling, asking for forgiveness, giving forgiveness without justice when the perpetrators still walk among us. Duly noted. Karen, there's like this trend in the media of like what happens to these news people after their careers are kind of ruined by scandal. You know, like Chris Cuomo lost his job at CNN. He's back with an uncensored podcast. Here's what Chris Cuomo couldn't say on CNN. Bob Garfield, co-host of On the Media, he lost his job for uh, bullying allegations. He came back with a podcast called Bully Pulpit. Hey, it's Bob Garfield, and look who's got a bully pulpit. Right? Like he was leaning into it. And Wendy Mesley. Wendy Mesley's 38-year career at the CBC came to a screeching halt after she used the N-word at work. Mm Mm-hmm. But Wendy Mesley is back in podcast form. She's owning it. She's leaning into it. It's called Women of Ill Repute. The Women of Ill Repute with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. It is about, quote, people who don't give a damn about the old rules. I'm not sure what to make of that in the case of Wendy Mesley. I guess the old rule that she doesn't give a damn about is the rule that you shouldn't say the N-word at work. Or, or, you know, anywhere. But she does give a damn about that because she says she's sorry for doing that. So it's, it's, it's a little bit confusing to me. You know, we've been covering the Wendy Mesley story, of course, in our media coverage. And we've been asking her for comments since it happened. At first, you know, she was going through the CBC's internal discipline process where um, it must be difficult. You can't speak up to, to give an interviewer to defend yourself, even as the CBC itself is reporting on you. You know, she, you know, doesn't have to agree to that. She could speak out anyhow, or she could have, but then maybe lose her job. She ended up leaving anyhow. And so the conceit now is that she's like, I guess, owning this ill repute. She had wonderful reputation. And if she has ill repute now, it's for using the N-word. And so we asked her again, because I I find her case interesting. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of wanting to hurl invective at her. Like, I find it interesting. And I find the dynamics of what happens in a newsroom versus what happens on the air worth exploring. But she turned us down for an interview. If this is the new Wendy Mesley, unchained and willing to defend herself, she's being very selective. She has access to the Globe and Mail, and she's written two pieces for the Globe and Mail. And she has her own podcast where she can control the message. And what you brought to our attention is that she has given a podcast interview, not to us, but to Anthony Fury of the Toronto Sun. He has a post-media podcast. And so she went... Mm-hmm. On that show, I think I used the N word in the first reference, and then I used the the whole word, and because I got caught up in the moment, and I shouldn't have used it, and I realized immediately that I'd hurt people, and I apologized uh, for using the word because I should have known better. But it turned into like the next year, I was basically portrayed by my employer of almost forty years as uh, as being a racist, and they never stood up for me, and. Uh, and I never fought for myself. So I, I think I, it, it kind of broke my heart, actually. It uh, was extremely, extremely difficult. Did you hear that? Yeah. And it was, it was a very soft interview. 
<laughs> in journalism, we have this like kind of ignorant term where we call it like a blowjob of an interview. How <laughs> dare you? How <laughs> dare you, Karen? Yeah. Maybe I'll be a guest on her show. We could have called it a snow job. We could have called it a friendly, but you went right for the vulgar version. Karen. <laughs> I went right. I, yeah, Mercy. I need to wash my, my mouth out with soap. And, you know, like, thankfully, this is a podcast and not, you know, a, a broadcast thing, so I can say such things. You can. This is also uh, a podcast <laughs> by a CBC reject leaning into his infamy. So you can, you can use all those cuss words here. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a soft interview. Like, it was very... I, I think very coordinated. Like I was thinking that going into that interview, it was very much about managing reputation, which is fine. I think that you do have to manage reputation if you're you're going to continue to have a, a career come back. I started counting, and I meant to listen to it again just to count how many times she apologizes in that interview, because there's like at least ten apologies that she makes where she restates her case over and over again about how this happened. And I shouldn't have used it. And I realized immediately that I'd hurt people and I apologize. I apologize because I had hurt people and should have known better, but I shouldn't have used it. And I apologize. And I think, yeah, and that's why I apologize. The thing is, I just need to go back and correct something you said, because you didn't say it once, right? And I think that this is one of the nuances that, you know, maybe needs to be a little explored about what might have happened inside CBC with this case, but she actually said it twice. So there was the fall of 2019 when she was still working on the show, The Weekly, at CBC, and they were discussing uh, Quebec's Bill 21, which is that, that bill against wearing religious symbols and cultural symbols if you're a civil servant. And uh, she was trying to explain maybe why Quebecers, Quebecois, were open to this. And she mentioned a book, and it was one that you and uh, Emily Nicolas spoke about earlier this week that has N-word in the title in French, and Wendy said the title in English. Now, somebody took her aside at that moment, and this is according to Wendy's own story, and said, you know, that, was, that made me deeply uncomfortable. You can't say that word. It's not appropriate. So when she says it, now, there, there's nothing that happens at that time, as, as far as we know. There's no punishment, there's no reporting to HR, anything. But it's 10 months later in June 2020 when she says it again during a show where they're preparing on racism. And she says it kind of slips out as they're discussing racism, mm-hmm. that somebody actually reports her. So there's a difference between like an oops or an oops and something gets explained to you that this is not appropriate workplace conduct or words, and then doing it again. So I think Some of her complaints are, and she talks about this a lot on that segment, is how the CBC treated her. And there is something about progressive discipline. There's something about doing something once. There's something about doing it twice. And to me, putting somebody on leave and then making them go to sensitivity training after something like that is, I don't know what else I would have done if I had been her manager. I think that's exactly what I would have done. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Anthony Fury basically gives Mesley an unchallenged stage to retell the events the way she wants to, and she misrepresents them. She says that this all happened because of one instance, and in fact, there were at least two, but she's admitted there were two. 
She says that she was wrong, and she says that saying the N-word hurt people, but she doesn't really say how it hurt people. She doesn't say who. Her accuser has come forward. It's, it was Imani Walker, an associate producer at CBC. So there's sort of this blithe acceptance, and it makes her complicated as the figure that Anthony Fury is looking for, because there is an effort throughout that weird interview to kind of welcome her to like, let's tell a story about Wendy Mesley, the victim who cancel culture victimized, who lost everything at the CBC because of one little slip up. And she actually has to correct him repeatedly. Right. And I guess I just mean that there was no sense of that nuance in public discussion or reporting of you or, or perhaps in the HR process. It seemed to just be, OK, Wendy has to lose everything now. I, yeah, I don't want to speak for them. And say, well, I actually didn't lose my job at the CBC. I was put on leave, sent to sensitivity training, and then I was given a job that I felt was beneath me. And so I quit, right? Which is very different than losing your job. And they're under no obligation to like put somebody on the air who seems to have a problem with not saying the N-word. That might be the right managerial decision. There's a welcoming to sort of what's been called the intellectual dark web where like all ye canceled people come over here. And he even suggests to her like you might have a justification for having said the N-word. There's different contexts. You were quoting a book. I think to her credit doesn't take him up on that offer to defend the use of the word. You've apologized for it and yet you still need to lose everything. It's kind of like uh, where was the nuance in all of that? Yeah, well, I, I – I don't think that there's any excuse for for saying the word, and I should have known better. But she's sort of in this gray zone now where if you're unwilling to take the heel turn, like some of her actions, like she's on Dean Blundell's network, and he's another mainstream media cancel culture victim who is too much of a shock jock. So he's started a podcast network to be uncensored, and she's on his podcast network with women of ill repute. They're going to tell it like it really is. But she's in this strange place of like, no, I actually did something wrong. They just went too hard at me. So I don't know. I think it's fine to have a complicated, nuanced past. And I think that it's understandable for somebody to want to just like work. And and it's interesting on that podcast, she talks about how she's not making any money off this podcast and maybe like, please, we're looking for a sponsor to bring us bags of cash. We're looking for sponsors. We're looking for like big bags of money to fall from the sky. I'll say this, like to this ongoing narrative that people are trying to create about free speech and the victims of cancel culture It's remarkable to me how completely that term has been hijacked. Yes. Right? Like, who needed freedom of speech? Like, artists needed freedom of speech. If you were doing sexualized art, God forbid, queer art, or political dissidents had to fight, to say something like free Palestine was something that you might have to fight censorship, or to say land back might have been something that were censored. It's a civil liberty battle. For many years, if somebody like me, if if a white guy brings up the phrase free expression or free speech at this point, it is assumed that the free speech that I'm fighting for is like the right to use the N-word or to ignore people's chosen pronouns. Like that's what it's become somehow. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine somebody going to like a woman in Afghanistan right now and saying, I know you don't have free speech. We don't have it in Canada either. I'm not allowed to say the N-word in my workplace Like, how is that, like, equivalent? Like, what are we fighting for here? There's been so many of these cases. There was um, Western University, a professor used the N-word. Ottawa U professor used the N-word the same year. Like, it's been a big debate inside universities. There was recently the, you know, uh, Radio Canada 
his use of the N-word on the air that came into question. And as somebody who sits on press freedom organizations, this is something that people will come and ask for support for. And I'm not going to speak for anybody else on the board of these, but I'm a hard no. It's like, this is not the expression of an idea. It's very easy not to say the word. Workspaces belong to all of us. There's other things that are inappropriate to say in workspaces. You know, one of the things Wendy Mesley says in that interview, she points out that her husband is Irish and I guess they use the word cunt a lot. My husband, you know, he's uh, Irish and thinks that that's <laughs> think that that's a word that you call everybody that you uh, think is being a dick in a certain moment. Um, and he doesn't see it as offensive. She says that really offends her. But like to him, it's a word you can use. Well, try using that around the office. You are going to go through the same mm-hmm. process. You're going to get a warning. You're going to get disciplined. You'll probably be put on leave and put on sensitivity training. You're not allowed to say certain things on broadcast. You can't say fuck. I can say it on your podcast. There is regulations through the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council, which, you know, forbid the use of that word during daytime television. Actually, I don't think you can say it at night either. You can say some things uh, after nine o'clock, but there's kind of a witching hour after the kids go to bed where certain things are allowed to be broadcast on television or radio that aren't allowed during the day. And so, you know, like back in the day, there was limited channels, there was limited airwaves, and there was kind of this idea that, you know, they're public good, not everybody can have one. And so there has to be public feedback on what's acceptable and what's not. And we've got these processes in place. You know, like the idea that free speech means that you can just say whatever you want under any circumstance that you want. And, and this is not just about Wendy Mesley anymore. This is much more about this this fight to use the N-word. I mean, really, if that's our freedom of speech problem in Canada, <laughs> I just don't even know what to say about that. It's not a freedom of speech issue. That shortcuts. Karen, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Listen, if people want to support the show, here's something you can do that maybe you haven't yet, and it really helps. Uh, follow us on Apple Podcasts. Hit the follow button. Uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Review us. That stuff really helps to get the show up on their charts, which is how other people find it. So if you haven't done that yet, um, that's a way you can help us. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email me about what you heard today uh, or anything else at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that you send. Karen Puglese, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Put in the show notes because we'll be on here another 20 minutes and have to spell my name. <laughs> Check the show notes for Karen's Twitter handle. This episode's produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So-Called. Syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, you can get premium podcasts from us when you click on the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. We need your support. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. 
you need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.